Welcome to the Scottish Business Network podcast. Hello, I'm Fraser Allen. Welcome to episode 45. As a boy growing up in Glasgow, Mark Bamforth toyed with the possibilities of becoming either a missionary or a baker. But by the time he left school, he had set his sights on chemical engineering. Spells in the oil and whisky industries followed before embarking on an outstanding career as a serial biotech entrepreneur in the United States, where he has been based for many years. Mark talks us through his career and also shares his experiences on the impact of COVID-19, Scottish innovation and the way businesses need to respond to the Black Lives Matter protests by embracing greater diversity. This interview was recorded on Zoom for a global audience of 90 business people at the online Scottish Business Network gathering on the 23rd of June 2020. And if you enjoy this episode, why not explore the archive? We have a wealth of fascinating interviews with big personalities from the world of Scottish business. You can subscribe to the Scottish Business Network podcast on iTunes, Spotify and numerous other providers. Thanks for your patience. The interview is about to start, but first a very quick promotion for what I do when I'm not doing this. Do you need a communications expert to help you with your marketing, brand storytelling or strategic content? Find out what I, Fraser Allen, can provide at www.allencoms.co.uk. That's Allen with two L's and an E, and comms with two M's. Good evening, everyone, and a huge welcome to Mark Bamforth. How is life treating you, and how has your business, which your current business, Aranta Bio, been affected by COVID-19? Hi, Fraser. It's nice to speak to you and nice to speak to everybody here uh, this evening. Um, personally, I'm fine. A bit zoomed out, probably like everyone else, uh, from the intensity of sitting in front of a screen and, and looking people uh, eye, eye and eye. Um, so it's been challenging and, uh, you know, not being able to travel, etc. It's, it's certainly been an extraordinary period. But if I focus on work, um, What's been great uh, is that we've been able to keep uh, one of our sites operational where we have lab staff uh, doing process development. And uh, we said everybody who doesn't need to be in the lab, you should work from home for those that need to be in the lab. Uh, Let's split you into two shifts. So we basically took the number of people on site down to about 25% of normal. And thankfully, everybody has been safe and there have been any uh, instance on site with uh, COVID-19. What's extraordinary is we've actually found this to be highly productive. So having a 15-hour day of lab coverage has actually been an improvement. So believe it or not, we're now going to keep a shift system in place. The other site that we have, which is based in Massachusetts, is under construction. And whilst neighbouring towns shut down all their construction, uh, the town that we're in allowed us to continue with our construction. And in fact, we have 140 construction workers on site right now. In order to keep them safe, we employed a nurse. So there's a nurse there every day, temperature checking everybody, but also asking them, have they been in contact with people with COVID-19, et cetera. And again, I'm thankful to say that we've been able to maintain a safe site and had no instances. Um, I am traveling to our site in Florida next week, uh, which makes my family feel a bit nervous. 
it does feel a bit like going into some kind of combat zone. Um, we now have the infection actually increasing again in 19 of the states. So it it kind of shows that, that the future is still precarious in exactly how we're handling this and how we're going to do it in a safe manner and try to prevent the spread of this disease further, especially to those who are vulnerable. Well, good luck with that that trip and glad to hear at least you've, you've drawn some benefits from the, the changing environment. Now let's take you all the way back to, to Glasgow where you grew up, attended Shawlands uh, Academy. So as a young as a young boy at school, I mean, what were your uh, expectations for your career? What sort of thing did you want to do? Yeah, well, um, so I thought about this question and, and let me let me reveal something to you that uh, maybe is good for good for a laugh. So when I was young, like pretty young, I thought of being a missionary. And that's because I grew up in a religious household, and I guess I read some of the adventure stories of people going to Africa. I also thought about being a baker, and that's because one of my friend's uh, fathers ran a bakery, and and I kind of liked the produce coming out of there. But but seriously, as I as I got into high school and uh, really realised that my passion was around physics and chemistry uh, and, and mathematics, and I decided to focus on chemical engineering. Uh, not really being sure exactly where that might lead, but believing that it was a, uh, an education that would help prepare me uh, for, for different choices. There's always time for a career change later on <laughs> to become a baking missionary. So you, yeah, you, you stayed locally at, uh, in terms of university, went to Strathclyde, <clears throat> studied chemical engineering. Uh, where were you most likely to be found in those days, in, in the bar, on the sports field or in the library? Uh, well, of course, the, the, the real answer is... Not in the bar. Uh, now, chemical engineering was very full-on. Uh, in fact, the the course I was doing at Strathclyde, there was a 50% dropout rate. So it was pretty hard to get through that course. Um, but I guess I have a pretty determined streak that once I've decided to do something, then I, I stick with it. And I, I was pleased I did. Um, I did play some uh, sports, uh, but but not as much in retrospect as I would have liked. And of course, occasionally I was found in the bar, especially in a, on a Friday evening. After university, you, you worked in two of the big Scottish industries, in oil and in whiskey. So can you tell us a bit about that period of your life and what you learned from it? Well, you know, I actually thought I was going to spend my whole career in the oil industry. I joined a company called Brit Oil that maybe not many people remember. It's not, it became a part of British Petroleum. And I was working offshore as part of my training as a petroleum engineer. And that really was where I expected to spend my entire career. Um, but uh, events intervened. Uh, the oil price crashed in 1986 to below $10 a barrel. And I was made redundant with uh, almost half of the, uh, the, the workforce. When I looked for jobs elsewhere in the oil industry, of course, what I quickly realized was that this was a global downturn. So there really were none to be had. And so I... Uh, then focus on going back to more of a mainstream chemical engineering role. Uh, and I joined Whitbread, uh, of course, a very a very old English brewing company. And I moved to just north of London to Luton. But part of my job was working for their whiskey division in Scotland. And I'd actually worked for them uh, when I was a student in my final summer. So that, that helped me to reconnect with them. And I was running various projects for them. But the other thing I was doing for Whitbread was running a proof of concept project that was a biotech project. 
And that's because in the 80s, a number of the, the uh, brewers said, well, we, we know how to ferment. We can grow bacteria or yeast or whatever. So maybe we should look into this biotech revolution that's starting to happen. And so that's what really gave me exposure to the world of biotech. And I realized that was where I wanted to spend my career. You joined a company called Genzyme? Well, I actually worked for Genzyme in the UK for 12 years before I moved to the States. And then I was with them for 10 years in Massachusetts. Um, and, you know, they, they were a small company. They were one of the first companies in biotech. Um, and, you know, a lot of life science companies raise money and, and spend maybe a decade uh, trying to develop a product. Uh, Genzyme really had a different philosophy. Uh, the company had a small clinical base in Massachusetts but really started within the first couple of years by acquiring two businesses in England. One of them was in Kent, uh, making diagnostic enzymes. That's where I joined. And the other one was near Cambridge, making fine chemicals and eventually pharmaceuticals. So when I joined there, um, I was leading a small team of six people doing technical support for manufacturing site and capital projects. Um, and uh, I ended up running the two UK operations um, uh, about 10 years later uh, and then moved to the US to run global manufacturing, which uh, over the next decade expanded very considerably, uh, ending up with about 12 sites, mainly US and Europe, and making about 20 commercial products. Um, and we had 3,600 employees now doing the manufacturing uh, for these products. Uh, and around this period in your career, you also did an MBA at Henley. Uh, and I'm just wondering about, uh, was this the point when you were starting to think, I'd really like to strike off and, and do my own thing, develop my own businesses? And, and was that kind of entrepreneurial uh, streak in you from an early age? Well, it's interesting. I was running uh, the manufacturing in one of the sites at Genzyme in the early 1990s. And I, I knew I wanted to expand my exposure to business and, and learn more about the things I hadn't, frankly, been trained in. Um, and so that's why I did the MBA, and I, I did it by distance learning. So it meant um, <clears throat> I was still working while studying, and so it took about three and a half years to do that MBA. Um, when I finished it, I wasn't sure what to do next because I didn't see my boss uh, moving anytime soon. Uh, and so I, I, I kind of felt like I was boxed in and, and wasn't really going to be able to, to make good use of it. Um, but in fact, uh, my boss's boss um, had the person I'd been reporting in to move to the other site, and I was given the opportunity to step up and run the site in Kent that I'd been at. So, so that was a, a breakthrough in terms of really expanding my career from a narrower focus to a broader one. But really, it took it took many more years until I was ready to launch my own business. But that still was a foundation in terms of knowledge to help me help me do that. And the business you launched in the stage was called Gallus, which is a very appropriately Scottish name. So, what, tell us the story of that. What, how did the, the idea come about, and how did you launch it? Well, so again, I did, I did my MBA in the early nineties. Um, I moved to the US in the year two thousand, and then about two thousand and four. I really wanted to run a business at that point, but again, I couldn't see an opportunity. And there was a lot happening in, in Genzyme, a lot of growth. And so I, I you know, kept my head down and continued in the role I was in. However, 
in 2009, uh, Genzyme really got into a very difficult position because we'd had a viral contamination uh, in two of our key facilities, and this impacted our ability to supply critical medicines to patients. And, you know, this was the raison d'etre of the company, right? Once you've had a product approved to ensure that it's there for patients. And so this led to a lot of leadership change, um, including uh, my boss, the CEO, saying that, you know, he needed to bring somebody in who dealt with some of the challenges we were facing. And so I realized it was it was time to move on. And at that time as well, a large pharmaceutical company stepped in to acquire acquire the company at that point of weakness. So, so now 2010, I'm thinking, okay, I want I want to run my own business. Um, my experience is primarily manufacturing operations. Um, there were some technical innovations that have been taking place around uh, something called single use technology, uh, more flexible approach to capacity, and so. I approached Johnson Johnson because there was a site that I was aware of. I'd actually tried to buy it for Genzyme a couple of times and it hadn't gone through. And I approached them and said, hey, I'd like to buy that site and start a business. And you can imagine they were a bit skeptical at first, um, but but they agreed that they'd give me some time to try to figure it out, get a plan together. Um, It turned out the biggest challenge in doing that was finding somebody to back the business. Um, It was too big. I needed too much money to buy the site for it to be of interest to a venture capitalist. Um, But it wasn't yet an established business. It was a carve-out. And so most private equity companies were wary about that kind of investment. And also, to be candid, I mean, I had no track record for starting and growing a new business. So, you know, there was that to factor in as well. So how did you manage to to crack that? <laughs> well, it took thirteen months to do it, and uh, and the first the first uh, private equity company I had on board uh, actually bailed at the eleventh hour. We'd already informed all the staff that we were going to do this when they decided that was a moment to try to get a better deal with J and J. And you know, you don't get to strong arm a company like J and J; they're very principled. And so uh, they gave me some more time and we went back out and spoke to a number of potential investors and were able to find a company that that this was a good fit with. So it just was really grinding away over that extended period of time and and frankly getting deeper uh, uh, writing checks against our family home in order to make this happen. So I was definitely uh, a bit of a white knuckle ride uh, through that period. So how did you find that psychologically, having worked in the cocoon of a large company to take those personal risks? It was it was very challenging because there were no guarantees. And um, all the money I'd spent previously building building sites and doing capital projects had come, you know, from, from the board, from Genzyme's coffers. And uh, you're right, it was a very different personal risk when you're out there yourself uh, trying to make it happen. So... Uh, it was challenging, but it was also exhilarating. Um, once once we had acquired the site and now we were in execution mode, we inherited 160 people from J&J, and it was a fantastic team. We were making two legacy products for J&J, um, and that relationship was very strong. There was a lot of trust there. Um, 
the biggest challenge that we faced was that we had no reputation in the industry because the site hadn't been a contract manufacturing site. It had been part of a large pharma. So it really took two years to build the brand, build a reputation, and, and start to, to win business with new clients. Um, and, and it started to accelerate after that. The, the, other, the other strange challenge, and I don't know if some people could relate to this, but we, this site was located in, in the middle of the USA in St. Louis. Um, and clients on the coast, the east and west coast, where a lot of the demand was, they saw this as a difficult location to get to, even though there were direct flights. And so there was a perception of, uh, well, that's that's a hard place to go and do business, whereas it really was a very stable work environment and uh, worked well for us. And the business was a success. I mean, what did you put that that down to? Well, I uh, put it down to, first of all, having a great team. Uh, again, we inherited this team from J&J that, Although they were part of a large pharma, they were they were uh, a satellite. They were a site that sat in its own, not close to other parts of J and J. And so there was a good streak of independence and of capability there. So that was the foundation. Uh, the physical assets we had, the building uh, was large pharma, so very well built. Um, and then the investors I had were patient, and we invested to build out new capacity. So as we could offer that to clients and start to bring them on board. Um, and, you know, there's always a little bit of luck thrown in there. Uh, so it's getting those initial clients that starts to build momentum and having success with their programs. Um, so that all of those things came together. And you sold the business in, in 2014, uh, Mark, but then stayed on for six months or so to to help with the integration. How did you find the, the exit process and what, what did you learn from it? Well, the interesting thing is I didn't want to exit. Um, I'd actually been working on uh, the potential to merge our company with another similar size company. They're actually slightly larger. And it would have made us, I think, number three in our sector uh, for the services we were providing. Um, but our, our investors, who again, were, were great on this journey, uh, but they were nervous because uh, J&J still was a big piece of our business with the products we're making for them. Um, but part of the reason they'd sold the site was that we were making products that, that were going to come under competition. And so there was concern that at some point they would they would end the contract um, and that we would then have to dig out of that hole. And so an offer was put on the table and, our, and our, um, our investors basically said, you know, we're not willing to take the risk of waiting a few years to see if this could be better. Let's, uh, let's just take this offer now. And um, that's what happened. Um, <clears throat> and so when the new owners came in, they, they wanted me to stay on uh, and run a piece of their organization. But as I reflected on the, the four years of that journey, I realized that I had been bitten by the entrepreneurial bug and that I really couldn't go back to work in a larger organization. And so I supported the integration for a number of months until they really didn't need me and then went off looking for the next adventure. Which was to set up Brahma Bio, another, another business. Was that built on a similar kind of model to Gallus? Uh, similar model, but different technology platform. So I had a, I had a non-compete uh, for the particular technology, which was monoclonal antibodies with Gallus. So Brammer Bio was focused on 
cell and gene therapy. Um, what, what was interesting in this chapter of the book um, was, if there is a book, and there isn't a book, just to be clear, but uh, what, what was interesting was that um, once you've made money for people, it turns out there are plenty of people willing to give you money to make for them. <laughs> so, so that was good. The money was not an issue. Uh, the issue was we wanted to have an anchor client in place so that we could um, we could really get the business going and not 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 have an empty building and no team and plans on paper. And we worked hard, uh, myself and a couple of colleagues, to try to do that. But but it was very hard to make that connection happen. And and in the end, after twelve months, we were beginning to wonder could we could we make it work. And uh, it was at that point that um, I got introduced to a company based in Northern Florida, uh, coincidentally, where we're also uh, present now. And that company had been involved in this space for 10 years. And they grow in a business with about 100 employees, uh, early stage cell and gene therapy work. And they they needed to scale. And they needed a a leadership team that knew how to do that. And so it really was a great marriage because we had a plan for the thing that they needed and they had what we needed, which was a reputation and a pipeline. And so we put those two things together and over the next three years, we grew the company from a hundred employees to 600. And uh, we were supporting about a third of the late stage pipeline of gene therapy products in the entire industry, which is almost unheard of, I think. And, um, we spent $200 million in, in uh, building out capacity to support these clients. But after three years, we realized that we needed to do even more. We needed to double the organization again and also to invest about another $200 million. And we didn't have that cash uh, lined up. And we decided that it made sense to sell the company to a larger contract manufacturer, to Thermo Fisher who really have the horsepower and experience and certainly the war chest to execute on the uh, the growth that was still there in front of us. So it was not quite so reluctant an exit, but obviously still bitten by the bug. You then went on pretty quickly afterwards to launch Aranta Bio. So what's the thinking behind that, your latest business? Well, so of course, now it inherited a non-compete for gene therapy. Uh, so this business is focused on the microbiome. And if I can just diverge for a moment, um, obviously we each have a microbiome. Uh, we have an estimated 100 trillion bacteria uh, in and on our bodies. Uh, 100 trillion is 14 zeros for anyone who's keeping score and about one kilogram in weight of bacteria. Um, what's happening now and over the last uh last decade, uh, but increasing the last five years, is really discovery of strong linkage between good bacteria uh, or lack of them in many health conditions, including inflammatory diseases, infectious diseases, certain types of cancer, and neurological diseases such as ALS and Parkinson's. So it's still a relatively new area. Uh, There are breakthroughs happening. In fact, there was a breakthrough announced just last week, the first pivotal trial that was successful uh, in in this uh, space. Um, And so we see this as being an emerging area where we can play a leadership role, again, as a contract manufacturer to these these pioneers. Um, 
So we're manufacturing live bacteria and uh, freeze drying them, keeping them keeping them live, so as they can be put into capsules, uh, taken orally, and then released in the gut and recolonizing in the gut. Um, so what's interesting is, you know, Gallus and Brammer took just over 12 months to get off the ground. Um, this one took under six months. <laughs> Again, having, having proved that the money was going to be available if um, uh, having made it already for others. Um, the key here was identifying a small company that had been providing services in this sector for, for a decade. And again, this company wanted to grow and didn't have the wherewithal themselves to make that happen. And so um, we acquired them and, and uh, their founder is now our chief scientific officer. And uh, we've expanded to about 60 people today and we'll be around 120 by the end of this year. And again, we're investing about $100 million in building out capacity uh, to support this industry. Now, as somebody who has a lot of experience of seeking investment for your, your own activities, um, I'm interested, you also, you also invest yourself, in. you've invested in a number of uh, smaller businesses. Uh, so what, what do you look for in a business if you, that you can actually put your money into? What's, what are the defining factors? Well, you know, for, first of all, you know, I have a day job, so I'm, I'm, not, a, I'm not a full-time investor by any means. Um, but frankly, it's a privilege to to be in a position now at this stage of my career to be able to support others as they progress on their journey. Uh, so first and foremost, it's an old adage, but I think it's true that you, you invest in people. Um, and those are people that, that you can believe in, uh, that, that have credibility, and they're trying to do something worthwhile, um, ideally something that is disruptive. So I really look for their passion and their commitment to make an impact. Um, a lot of the opportunities in Scotland that I, I've been involved with are either connections through Entrepreneurial Scotland um, and the Soltar uh, Fellowship, which um, I was involved in, in founding about uh, 12 years ago, uh, and really building on, on uh, those relationships over the last decade, uh, primarily focused on life sciences. So um, I could give you uh, a couple of examples if it's helpful, but I recently invested in uh, Numagen, which is a spin-out from the University of St. Andrews, and Numagen has been working on a, a pan-viral treatment uh, that could be valuable against COVID-19 and other known and unknown viruses. And this is the potential to make an impact that could affect many lives, and they had an urgent funding need to try to move this forward and I, I, I saw the opportunity to support their CEO, Douglas Thompson. And I got to know him, which led me to that opportunity through another Scottish company, Enterobiotics. And I got to know their founder, um, Dr. James McElroy. Um, and, and that's often how it works, right? You know somebody who knows somebody else who has an idea and a passion to make a difference. Um, and an opportunity I've supported that uh, isn't life sciences um, is in Celtic Renewables, uh, who are developing a biofuel from the byproducts, the waste products, really, of uh, the Scottish whiskey industry. Um, and that's under the leadership of Mark Simmers, who was a 2011 Soltar Fellow. Um, so you can see, typically, there are connections there and there's some other other opportunities uh, that I've been able to make some uh, initial seed investments into 
um, like flow to try to help them as they go in their pathway. Um, so, you know, <clears throat> as I said, I have a day job. This isn't investing isn't what I do um, as, a, as a job. Um, and I often rely on others to do some more in-depth diligence on opportunities. But, you know, sometimes diligence doesn't always give you an answer that's conclusive. And um, opportunities often are high risk. And that's not necessarily a, det a deterrent if the potential benefit of supporting that opportunity and supporting the leadership team is worth testing. Now, Mark, I'm sure that the, the fathers of the Scottish Enlightenment would be very proud of you. You've embraced innovation. You've, you've been very outwards looking and made a, a very positive impact in the world. From where you're sitting, how good do you think um, Scotland is at innovation now? And, and how, how good is it at selling that innovation internationally? Yeah, it's it's a great question, one that I've I've pondered a bit. I mean, I think Scotland has always um, been strong in education and produced people who want to make an impact in the world, either from home or from travelling overseas. Uh, and I see the spirit of innovation continues. I, I see within universities and spin-outs from universities that, that that innovation is is alive and well. You know. Sometimes culture can be a barrier. Um, I certainly didn't think about creating my own company when I was young. Once I was post the missionary and baker uh, piece, you know, it, it didn't occur to me to think about starting a business. Um, and it took me until I was 47 to discover my entrepreneurial gene and really let, let it loose. Um, so what encourages me is I see there are a lot of young Scottish entrepreneurs who are willing to put their all into creating businesses, and that's that's very exciting. One thing that I think is a real strength in Scotland is that I see this commitment uh, from the Scottish Investment Bank to co-invest uh, alongside investors in these businesses. I think that's a really powerful uh, statement of commitment and way of getting you know higher level of funding that can help move these companies. So that critical stage from, you know, initial concept, proof of concept into really growing the business. So for me, there are some very positive and encouraging signs. I think the warning is that the world is very competitive and there are other small countries that are well connected and can make decisions quickly. You know, like Israel, for example, and they use their size and commitment to entrepreneurship to constantly look outwards for opportunities to collaborate. And, you know, emerging from this pandemic, uh, whilst for many people it may just be, you know, get through this survival mode, um, but quickly companies need to really move beyond that and think about how do they grow? How do they grow their markets? What's changed? And how can they be successful in a world stage? Um, just one more question from me, because I'm going to hand over to Christine shortly to open up questions from, from everybody else who's listening in. Um, it's obviously been an extraordinary year, what with COVID-19 and, and, and now Black Lives Matters eclipsing that extraordinarily in, in the headlines and all the things that have been going on. Have you, how have you seen that um, the, the story of the, the protests um, from where you, you're sitting in, in the States? And do you think it's going to have any impact on the way that you run your business? Yeah, it, it, this this is a challenging moment that we're in. When when George Floyd was killed 
by a policeman, it, it appeared as another in a litany of uh, police-related brutality against black Americans in the U.S. And frankly, I, I was prepared, you know, just to be disappointed in it, something like this happening again, but not to expect change. Um, I also thought, you know, what can I do to change that? Those are systemic, deep, uh, deep-rooted issues. Um, however, as the demonstrations have grown and as there's been really international recognition of the problem of racism in the UK and in France and Australia and elsewhere, I've started to feel like this really could be a watershed moment. I heard somebody say, it's not enough to say I'm not a racist. You need to be anti-racist. And I actually think that's right. We all need to figure out what can we actually do to change the situation. So at Aranta now, we've launched a diversity and inclusion effort to reach out to high schoolers, to encourage minorities there to enter the life sciences. This is a place with a lot of growth. Um, we're engaging with university students uh, to provide internships for minorities. Um, we're working with an organization that helps 18 to 24-year-olds that didn't go to university, try to get them onto a career path. And in fact, we have our first two internships from that program are going to start with us next month. Um, and I've been involved with uh, our local industrial organization here, MassBio, that represents the industry to encourage other companies to increase their commitment to diversity and inclusion. So I think this is a time when we can make a lasting impact to reduce systemic racism and to expand opportunities for minorities, which will benefit everybody in society. Thanks, Mark. It's been wonderful speaking to you. Thank you, Fraser. And then we headed to audience questions. Why not join us for the next meeting so you can take part in that too? Thanks again to Mark, whose fascinating story received rapturous feedback from the audience on the night. Of course, everyone was on mute to prevent distracting noises. Maybe we should introduce fake crowd noises like they do with the football on TV. And thanks for listening to episode 45, which reminds me of an excellent book called 45 by the Scotsman Bill Drummond. You may well know him as the man who, together with Jimmy Corty, burnt £1 million as an art stunt back in 1994. Fascinating book. Just thought I'd mention it. We'll be back in two weeks. To find out more about the Scottish Business Network, simply visit sbn.scot.